welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. It has been a great pleasure for us here at Gateway today to have with us Dr. Crystal Curgis and her husband, Mark. Mark, will you stand up, please? We, you were here this morning and we... We're going to see your wife in a moment, but we wanted this. You were introduced as a veteran youth worker. Was that an insult or a compliment? I'm not sure, but I won't say that about you. It just means I'm old. <laughs> oh, I know that feeling. Um, Crystal is a respected international speaker and author, especially on the subject of keeping our teens connected with faith. She is also a C.S. Lewis scholar. They are from Indiana, and we heard this morning that there are three outstanding things in Indiana, cornfields, cornfields, and cornfields. (laughs) I did a Google search this afternoon, and they were so right. Crystal, Mark, it is a delight for us to have you with us today. Crystal, will you come and share with us, and let's welcome her, please. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Whoa, that is so loud. Um, It was so wonderful to be here this morning, and there's some faces of people that I met this morning, which is very fun to see. I did not meet the band beforehand because we didn't get here as early. I just met Jeff really quickly in the aisle. You have amazing music here. Oh, my word. I hope you tell them every Sunday thank you for the music that they give you. Um, The only carryover from this morning to tonight was Dale on bass. Wow. Uh, My husband and I were in a band in Chicago that did covers of classic rock and roll. And when I say classic rock and roll, I mean Credence Clearwater Revival, the Doobie Brothers, the real deal. Um, And Mark is a very good bass player. And I've got a son who's a very good bass player. But Dale is a great bass player. I hope that you enjoy watching him. Yeah. He's not... He's not showing off, he just does that, and I am sure that God takes great delight in watching his children do the things they love, but the reason it's good is because the sound has them turned up. There's nothing worse than watching a bass player doing this and you hear nothing, so thank you. It almost rattled the soles of my shoes, which is what the bass should do. Rattle the soles of your shoes, Uh, right? I speak truth. I may just come from cornfields, but I know about that. Great, it's wonderful to be here with you again. Let's pray really quickly before we start. Lord, thank you for this place. Thank you that wherever your children gather, it is your temple, and you are here with us. We have already experienced you through wonderful music and conversation and just the presence of being here. I pray that we would have open eyes and ears and hearts tonight and that we would keep communing with you that we would enjoy our time together, and that as we close out our Sunday evening and begin a new week, that we would live for you completely and totally. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This morning, I I know that many of you probably weren't here, but we talked about uh, Eustace Clarence Scrub, who is the nasty, irritating, yucky little boy in Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is book number three in the Chronicles of Narnia. And if you need to know why the fact that it's the third book matters, you just talk to your pastor because 
we've nailed this doctrine down and it's solid. It goes like this, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, Prince Caspian, Voyage of the Dawn, Treader, Silver Chair, Horse and His Boy, the sixth book, sixth, mind you, is Magician's Nephew. And there's a letter from Lewis to prove it. If anybody wants to duke it out in the alley afterwards, I'll meet you there. Uh, it is kind of a big deal. Anyway, we looked at Eustace Clarence Scrub. The, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader starts like this. There was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. That's what he was like. And how he was, his life was somewhat like the prodigal son. Eustace ended up becoming a new person because he encountered Aslan, who is the form that Christ takes in Narnia. But tonight, I'd like to just really briefly talk about someone else from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and it is the mouse to end all mice, Reepicheep. Oh, he's the best thing ever, besides the fact that he's big, so he's kind of like a small dog size. But Reepicheep is the most courteous, valiant, courageous, honorable, faithful, add all of those words in mouse that exists. Now, if you're just talking about normal mice, that doesn't sound that great, but when you're talking about all of the Narnian mice, it's a very, very big deal. He uh, is always the first, he wants to be the first one to go into the battle. If they would let him be the only one go into battle, even though he's only two feet tall, he would happily do that. He would defend Aslan to the death, and he almost does a few times. He is one of Aslan's sort of inner circle. He's one of the three disciples, if you will. I'm not sure that there's really a parallel to that because it's not an allegory. The books are not an allegory where there's an even one for one. But Reepicheep is as great as it gets. He's sort of, um, Lewis was a medievalist and he loved Arthurian legends and Reepicheep is a knight of the highest order. He's delightful. He also speaks his mind all the time. He's not afraid to say what he thinks. Um, but he is faithful to the king. And uh, if you were going to compare Reepicheep to anybody in scripture, I think the easiest one to compare him to would be Peter, who also is never afraid to speak and always speaks his mind, often when he shouldn't, and is valiant and in the garden is willing to whack off an ear if that's what it's going to take to save his savior. I mean, Peter is always front and center. The problem with comparing Reepicheep and Peter is that Reepicheep is almost always obedient and in the right. And Peter, well, in the book of Acts, Peter's stunning, right? He preaches boldly. He faces his opponents valiantly. He endures prison with courage and determination. But Peter in the Gospels is another story entirely, if you are familiar with Peter in the Gospels. Uh, like Reepicheep, he's not afraid to speak. If you go back and read the Gospels carefully, you will find out that Peter is always the first disciple to speak. Always. And sometimes, I'd say often, he shouldn't speak. And sometimes he even knows he shouldn't speak, and he's still the first one to speak. When they're up on the mount with Jesus, he's there with Peter, or he's there with James and John and Jesus, and then Moses and Elijah. And the Bible says, Peter, not knowing what to say, said, and then he starts talking. <laughs> That's Peter. When there's a question about should the children be here, it's Peter asking. When Jesus announces that anybody 
who sells everything or leaves behind things to follow him will be rewarded. Peter's the one who goes, but what if we like haven't sold anything and we're just with you? What happens to us? He's always the first one to speak. Um, you're all gonna, you, someone in here is gonna, going to deny me and leave me alone. Peter, oh no, I won't. Mm, yeah, no, even if everyone else does, I won't. Peter is always the first one to talk. I understand Peter because Crystal often stands and feels the words coming up to the backside of her lips, ready to dance out. And Crystal says, don't come out, don't come out, just stay in. And then it's like, "Mm," and they're already out and it's too late to do anything about it. Peter is, I'm just going to say it right out. Peter is a record stinker in the Gospels much like Eustace was for the first half of Voyage of the Dawn Treader, a record stinker. It's so bad that Jesus has to say to him once, get behind me, Satan or the accuser. That's how much trouble you're causing me. He denies his Lord three times. He disappears in the most difficult night of Christ's life. He falls asleep in the garden when all he had to do was stay awake. He is a failure. And then there's that really big failing time. It's a story that most of us love um, where he takes his eyes off Jesus and blubs underneath the water and his one shot at glory is gone just like that. Peter fails miserably. This morning we're going to look at, or this evening, sorry, This evening, we're going to look at a story about Peter that I think many people know. It's the story of Peter walking on water. There was a time in my life when I loved this story. Um, I loved it because I liked being challenged to do big and amazing things. I loved it because I liked um, pushing myself to be better than Peter was. I mean, what's better than being better than one of the disciples, right? Like, I'm going to do it, but I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. For a while, I loved it because I loved the song. And then now maybe that's not on the why I love it list anymore, though Oceans is fine. But it's become so much a part of our blood and breathing that we maybe don't even think about it when we say, get out of the boat, follow Jesus, walk on water. It's become a part of our almost our doctrine in some ways, that we understand, most of us at least, if someone said, are you willing to get out of the boat? We would know what they were talking about, I think. So I am a chronic boat climber outer. I'm great at it. I love leaving where I am to go do something bigger and better and more exciting. It sounds great. Actually, I think most people who do youth ministry are like that. I don't know how we'd make it otherwise. Anna, am I right? I know, Um, but I'm not sure it's for the right reasons. So I want to look at the story more closely tonight because this story is still one of my favorite stories in scripture, but now it's for an entirely different reason. Because about, I don't know if it was eight, nine, or ten years ago, my pastor got up. I knew this was the passage. I'm just quivering in my chair like, this is so great. This means God has something big in store for me. I mean, I'm sure the timing is all going to fall together, and I'm getting all jazzed up about what's the next thing going to be that I'm going to be called out of the boat for. And I left church that morning feeling entirely differently, entirely differently. And it was just from, actually, 
It wasn't from the preaching. We had a wonderful preacher, and he preached the story the way <clears throat> that I usually hear it. Um, but I was so sure that I knew what he was going to say that I was just taking my own notes and reading the story myself and reading the story really carefully and reading the context around the story, and it changed it all for me. So tonight, all I would ask you, first I would say, if you enjoy the challenge to step out of the boat, I'm not saying that that's a bad challenge. Um, it might be, but I'm not saying that tonight. What I'm saying tonight is, I think there might be another way to read this story if we look at it carefully and don't go into it assuming that we know what it says and just reading it carefully. So, you probably know the story. The disciples are in a boat. It's late at night. There's a terrible storm. They're afraid, and the fact that some of them are fishermen and they're afraid means it's a really bad storm, okay? Because they're used to being on the water. And then they see something off in the distance, and they think it's a ghost, and they're all scared. These big, tough guys go back and forth between being awesome and being scared and being awesome and being scared. They're scared, and it's Jesus, and Jesus says, you don't need to be afraid. And then Jesus calls Peter to step out of the boat and walk to him, and Peter steps out because Peter is awesome. And then Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, and he goes under and Jesus saves him, and then Jesus says, why did you doubt that I could make you walk on water? I mean, we know the story really, really well. Um, but let's read it anyway, okay? And we're going to start with the context, because this is what happens right before this story, and the order is the same in every gospel, though this is the only gospel that talks about Peter stepping out of the boat and walking on water. But here's the context. They are Jesus and his disciples. They'd been in a boat going across the water. Uh, when you read the Gospels, you could really summarize the Gospels this way. Jesus and his friends together, stuff happens. They get in a boat, they sail across the lake, they get out. Jesus and his friends in a crowd and stuff happens. Then they get in a boat and they sail to the other side. They get out, it's just back and forth, back and forth. So right before this story that happens in a boat, they're in a boat. And they get out. They were going to a remote area to be alone because Jesus had just found out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been beheaded. And he wanted to go and be alone, probably to mourn and pray about it. But the crowds heard where he was, and they followed him. And Jesus always has compassion on the crowds. And so he stayed and took care of them. He healed them. He had compassion on them. And then when we get to Matthew 14, verse 15... This is where the story starts getting good. That evening, the disciples came to Jesus and said, I'm going to stop there for a second because another thing you'll see in the New Testament, if you look for it, is the disciples feeling very comfortable telling Jesus what to do. They do it quite often. Send the children away. Don't talk to him. He doesn't matter. We don't have time. Let's go. Here's the disciples telling Jesus what to do. They said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Because I don't know if they thought Jesus didn't know that they were in a remote place, and they thought he couldn't tell time, but they felt like it was very important to remind him that they were in a remote place, and it was late. And then they tell him what to do. First they tell him what's what, and now they're going to tell him what to do. Send the crowds away so they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Because 
You probably haven't thought about the fact that they're hungry. Good thing we're here to think about those details for you. So send them away. The disciples are telling Jesus what to do. And Jesus said, well, that's not necessary. You feed them. There's a flipping back on yourself, right? Doesn't tell them how, just you feed them. And they get all agitated and they're like, but we only have five loaves of bread and two fish. That's not even enough for us. Bring them to me, he said. And then he told the people, and it says that there were thousands of people, so I'm not sure if his voice is projecting that far or if he tells the first row of people and they keep passing it on. But however it happened, he told the people and the whole crowd heard eventually to sit down on the grass. And then, so they're sitting, Jesus is standing, so they can probably see him. And then he took the five loaves and the two fish and lifted them up and looked up towards heaven and he blessed the food and maybe also blessed the people. And then he broke the loaves into pieces and he gave the bread to the disciples who distributed it to the people. Now, whether they could hear or not, even if you were in the furthest corner, you saw Jesus hold up an amount of food that fit in his hands. And then he's fiddling around with stuff and handing it out to the disciples. So I'm pretty sure that it's pretty clear to people that there's not a bounty of food that's gonna get passed around. And if you're in row two, you think you're gonna go hungry because there might not even be enough for row one or sections, however it worked back then. So the people know that there's not a lot of food. And the people see Jesus break it and he gives a little bit to each disciple. Can you imagine if you divided five loaves between 12 guys? That's almost nothing. The disciples distribute it to the people. And everyone ate as much as they wanted. And afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. And about 5,000 men were fed that day, in addition to all the women and all the children. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Now, we know that Jesus multiplied the bread and loaves. Maybe the people knew that because they had seen but what the people experienced was one of these 12 guys, these 12 ordinary guys, taking a little bit of food and passing it around this group of people and then passing it around the next group of people and then the next group of people. And what should have run out after the first few people never runs out. The people see that the food never runs out. They're not carting around big baskets of food. They've got these little baskets of food and it never runs out. This is the first huge miracle that Jesus does and it's huge. It's the first huge miracle that he does and it's the first time that the disciples are kind of part of what's going on. So in many ways, they are the face of the miracle. They are who the crowd is seeing and interacting with as they pass it out and I have no idea what's going on in their head. The Bible leaves out so many details. For someone who likes novels, there just is so much missing from in here. But human nature doesn't change very much over time. And so I suspect that it's very possible that as the disciples are handing out bread over and over and over and over again, and people are saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. How does he keep handing out bread? Where's the bread coming from? I mean, I thought it would be gone then. Thank you, thank you. That's what's happening through... Well, let's see, there's 12 of them. Let's say there's 5,000 plus that many. Let's say there's only 12,000 people. That means maybe 1,000 people had interaction 
with each disciple and saw the disciple be the one to hand out all this food. Okay, I'm just gonna say, if you're a normal human being, it's gotta feel pretty awesome to be the one who keeps handing out food to a lot of people when you have hardly any food. Even if you know you're not the one making it multiply, it's still multiplying. You are the face of the miracle. And I suppose that you might get a little more, you know, as you go, like, this is awesome. I wonder how long this is gonna last. It's never running out what's happening. And I think, to put it in modern terms, that it might have been easy to feel like, I mean, I know I'm not multiplying the bread, but I know the guy who multiplied the bread. Like, we're like this. He's basically the most amazing rock band ever, and um, I'm with the band. And I wonder if at some point it kind of felt like, I mean, yeah, I'm with the band, but I'm with them all the time. It's kind of like I am the band. I have no idea, but they were human, like us, and I don't think that's a ridiculous thought. And can you imagine after 12,000 people or more were fed, the disciples are coming back, walking, because they've gone all the way through the crowds, now they're walking back through the crowds, and there's still 12 baskets left over. They're each going to have a full basket of food. Can you imagine what people maybe started saying to them? or what they were thinking about people might start saying to them. I mean, this is a very big moment for them. They are now going to be well known. That's the context for the story that we're gonna look at. Verse 22, immediately after this, immediately as in this story quite often, Immediately after the 12 disciples had fed more than 12,000 people with five loaves and two fish and had 12 baskets left over, immediately after that thing where the disciples are the face of the miracle, immediately after that, Jesus commanded his disciples to get back into the boat and go to the other side and wait for him there, which is so unfair. Because this was when you do like the meet and greet after the concert, right? This is where you have your backstage passes and you get to ask the band groupies what it's like to know the band and what it's like to hang out with them and ask them how that whole thing happened and get to know them. And wow, it could have been a really big moment for the disciples, but immediately after they were fed, Jesus commanded them to get back into the boat and go to the other side, which is what they do through the whole gospel. So there's the command that matters. So, <laughs> oh, not just get back in the boat and wait for me there, but get back in the boat, go to the other side while I send the people home. Like he wants all the glory or something. Jesus gets to do all the visiting with people. Okay, so after Jesus sent them home, he went up to the hills by himself to pray and night fell while he was there alone. So that whole thing is going on. He sends them home, he goes to the mountains. Meanwhile, and the camera switches over here, meanwhile, while Jesus is up in the mountains alone after he got to have all the airtime with the amazed crowd, his disciples were in grave trouble far away from land for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. It's a bad storm. 
And at about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. So we've had a command and we've had a crisis. This is kind of how it goes in the New Testament all the time. You're supposed to do something. Then there's a crisis. Right now it's a storm. There's a crisis. Jesus comes walking towards them, walking on the water. And the person who's writing this story now only could have written this afterwards because in the moment, they didn't know it was Jesus. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, and now you've got chaos because there's 12 men in a boat and there's something out there walking on the water and they are terrified. And in their fear, they screamed out, it's a ghost. Now this is actually a really great line. It's a ghost. If you like ghost stories, this is an awesome story. But the morning that I was reading this story again for myself, I'm like, well, why did they even think that? I mean, they just saw Jesus feed thousands and thousands of people with five loaves and two fish. Why don't they know that it's Jesus? Well, what they see walking towards them looks like a person, but people can't walk on water, so it must be a ghost. That's just logical. People, this is important, people don't walk on water, so it must be a ghost. So they scream out, it's a ghost. And then because Jesus is who he is, he doesn't make fun of them and he doesn't laugh at them for being little babies in the boat, crying about being afraid. He says immediately, there it is again, don't be afraid. Take courage. It's me. I'm here. Then Peter said, <laughs> here we go. Peter's always the first one to talk. Now, this is the part in the story where Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, right? That's why he was out there in the first place. Except that's not how the story goes. And that's not how the story has ever gone when you read it. Then Peter said, okay, Jesus just said, it's me, don't be afraid, I'm here, shh, all is well. Then Peter said, well, if it's really you. That's the first part of this conversation. If it's really you, now Peter's gonna tell Jesus what to do again because they're really good at that. So here's the second command. The first command came from Jesus when he said, get in the boat. Now here's the second command. You tell me to come out of the boat walking to you on the water, which is exactly the opposite of what Jesus had already told him to do. Wow, whoa, this changed the story for me a lot. Getting out of the boat was Peter's idea. It was Peter's idea. And it was in direct response to Jesus saying, it's me, I'm here, don't be afraid. And I don't know if Peter's replaying the like, yeah, big deal for you. We didn't even get to hang out with the people after the, the stuff. We just had to get back in the boat. So hey, how about this, Jesus? If it's really you, tell me to come to you out of the boat, walking on the water. Now here's the thing about that. First of all, it's Peter's idea. And second of all, the only person who this would serve is Peter. Nobody gets fed. Nobody gets healed. 
It's not gonna prove to anybody that Jesus has power over nature. They already can see it. He's out there walking on the water already. The only person that is served by this is Peter being awesome. There's one other time in scripture when, there's probably more than one, but there's one very significant time when someone says to Jesus, well, if that's really who you are, then do this. And it happens three times. And it's in the wilderness. And it's the devil. Well, if it's really, if that's really who you are, then prove it by doing this. And essentially, Peter is saying, if that's really you, then prove it by making me walk on the water. And Jesus says, yes, come, period. He doesn't say climb out of the boat. He doesn't say walk on the water. Maybe he meant that. I don't know, but he doesn't say it. He doesn't say it. And some people would say, well, you see, maybe it was Peter's ideas first, but now it's also Jesus' idea. And I don't think so anymore. This morning when we looked at the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal son went up to his dad and said, I want all my stuff. Give me my stuff. And the dad said, yep, here it is. It wasn't the dad's idea, and it wasn't a good idea. But when we are determined to do something, Jesus lets us do it. Because there's no other way we're going to learn how and why we need to obey him. He doesn't force us to obey him. So Peter commands Jesus to command him to get out of the boat. Jesus says, and I don't, I, I honestly, I'm going to read into this just for a moment. It's just my thought. Knowing Peter as well as Jesus did at this point, Jesus might have gone, oh my gosh, again, Peter? Okay, come on. Knowing full well what was going to happen. Now, in my children's Bible, Jesus was really far away in the picture. So I had this image of Peter walking like, I don't know, at least a kilometer or so before he goes under. Like it was a very big deal. I want you to see some of the art, some of the way that they have portrayed this. It's a little dark, you maybe can't see, but there's Jesus surrounded by light, even though it's three o'clock in the morning. And in the very back, you see that little token lightning bolt? It's just a little tiny white thing. There is no scary waves in that picture. There's no storm to be afraid of. And Jesus is far away. So if Peter walks to him, he must walk very, very far. I call this the boring picture. Uh, the next one is, put up the next one. Right, this is the one I call the bored and disinterested Jesus picture. Because... Does he look like he'd rather be anywhere except doing this? Yes, he does. Anywhere except here. Also, he's entirely clean. In a white robe, entirely clean. But if you could see his face really clearly, you would know how bored he looks. Very bored. The next one is, oh right, this is Dancing with the Stars, Jesus. So he's got that little move going with his elbow. And he's making sure that Peter sees that not only can Jesus walk on the water, but he can do it with style. Thank you very much. And, but again, there's no waves. There's not even a token lightning bolt in this one. It doesn't look scary. There's one more, maybe. Oh, this is from the very early, early Byzantine area, era. So much closer to Jesus. You'll notice that Peter steps out of the boat, goes under, 
and Jesus is right there. The further away in time you get from the event, the further Jesus gets from the boat. I think that's kind of funny. Besides which, we didn't start talking about getting out of the boat as a good thing until the 20th century. It's very new. So there's Jesus saving him immediately. And one more, because this is great. There you go. That's the really accurate one right there. The photograph from someone who was there. Thanks, you can take those down. Anyway, Jesus, or Peter, Peter tells Jesus what to do, and Peter steps out of the boat, walked on the water toward Jesus, but when he saw the strong wind and the waves, and I thought, wait a second, it's supposed to say, when he took his eyes off Jesus, I know it says that because the song says that it says that. But it says, when he saw the wind and the waves. And can I just tell you something? If Peter hadn't noticed the wind and the waves before that, he's just an idiot. Because there's wind and waves everywhere. They're very afraid of the storm. And Peter's so concerned about himself that he doesn't pay attention to the circumstances until it's too late. When he sees the wind and the waves and realizes that there's a bad storm and he's not in a boat, he begins to sink. This is so shocking that a human being would start sinking after climbing out of a boat. I mean, it makes you kind of stop in your tracks, doesn't it? So he starts to sink, and he says, save me, Lord. And Jesus, just like the father this morning, should have said, are you kidding me? You're the one who wanted to get out of the boat. It was your idea. What did you think was going to happen, Peter? Really, really, Peter, what did you think was going to happen? But Jesus immediately reaches out and grabs him, just like the father did this morning, and he said, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? And I'm like, that verse isn't done. It's supposed to say, why did you doubt that I could make you walk on water? But I think it might be referring to, why did you doubt me when I said, it's me, I'm here, don't be afraid, and you said, well, if it's really you? Why did you doubt? And why did you doubt, Peter, that when I put you back in that boat to get away from that crowd that might have said adoring things to you, it was the best thing for you. Why did you doubt? Jesus doesn't say to Peter, Peter, it's very important that you not take your eyes off of me because someone is going to write a song about this 2,000 years from now and we got to get the story right. And you can do this and it's important and this was my idea, so let's get it right. Let's practice. Come on. He doesn't. He hauls him back into the boat, which is the best place for human beings to be when they're on the water. It may not be exciting, but it's good. Well, that kind of was a buzzkill for me after being able to be excited about being a boat climber outer. And being able to say, yep, every time Jesus calls me to something, I say yes. Oh, and by the way, I don't take my eyes off of him either. I sat there and thought, how many of those were my idea? Because here's what's happened over time. We've turned the boat into a metaphor for whatever you don't want to be doing anymore or whatever's easy and comfortable. 
because certainly Jesus doesn't want you to be safe in a storm. He would want you to climb out. We've turned the boat into something that we can make it whatever we want. And I'm sorry, but this is not a parable. This is something that happened. And it was actually a boat. That's what it was. It's really dangerous when we take something concrete in scripture and turn it into a metaphor unless the rest of scripture supports it. And what the rest of scripture supports is obedience. Uh, When Jesus calms the storm, it's really bad hermeneutics to say, "Mm, Jesus wants to calm all the storms of your life. The storm is not a metaphor in that story. I'm not convinced anymore that the boat is a metaphor, nor am I convinced that Jesus is calling us out of whatever metaphorical boat we're in at any given time during our lives. I think he's calling us to do plenty of things. Um, Die to yourself every day. Let all your sinful nature be crucified. Put everything in second place compared to what you think about me. Love the people that are hard to love. And not just those people, love your enemies. I'm not saying that Jesus doesn't call us to do impossible things or equip us to do impossible things. He does, but some of them are kind of bland and no one's gonna make a movie about them. Like forgiving that family member of yours who it's been really difficult and they've never even asked you to forgive them, but God says we forgive because that's what he does for us. Are you brave enough to step out of the boat and do amazing things for Jesus? Might not be the right question. The right question might be, Are you obedient enough to stay, go, do whatever it is that God commands you to and do it with the humility of Christ? In today's world, authenticity is a really big thing, and a lot of us would like to be authentically awesome. I've been called to do some really hard stuff. I always say yes. And I'd like to be very authentic with you about how awesome it was, or whatever. I don't know. Authenticity is the thing right now. And authenticity might be the worst idea ever if it means being true to yourself or being true to myself. That is the last person in the world I should be true to. Authenticity is a good idea if it means All of your friends really like to play athletics and you love to play the bass guitar. And you're like, I don't feel bad about saying I don't want to play that game where people knock each other around. I like to play my bass guitar. That's the kind of authenticity that I think is beautiful. But I think when the world says authenticity, it means whatever drives you, whatever you think is right, whatever you deeply, deeply want to do, be authentic to it. That would not go well very quickly. Because here's, I think, what we're called to. Authority, God's authority, being true to God's commands. And humility, being true to Jesus' example. And charity, which is an old translation of agape love, which is being true to the Spirit's essence 
and community which is being true to each other. Being true to self might be the most selfish thing that we could ever do, unless what we're being true to is the transformed, redeemed, forgiven self that Jesus has given us. And that brings me back to Reepicheep for just one moment. Reepicheep was authentic only insofar as he lived like a true Narnian. Reepicheep respected authority. He was about the proudest humble mouse I've ever met, but there was a sense of humility in him and charity and community, and you see it in one of the best lines in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Reepicheep has one goal in mind, to get to Aslan's country. And while they're on this boat, Reepicheep is on a boat, just like Peter, and they have been sailing for a long time in the going this direction, and he's sure, or hopeful at least, that at the end is Aslan's country. And someone says, well, what if it's not? And he says, well, while I can, I sail east in the Dawn Treader. And when she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle, his little tiny boat. He never once says, by the way, when she fails me, I'm going to get out and just walk on the water the west way to get there. He is going to get in his little boat and go. And when my little coracle sinks, I shall swim east with my four little paws. And when I can swim no longer, if I have not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I shall sink with my nose to the sunrise and Peepicheek will be the head of the talking mice in Narnia because he thinks about community. So, besides the question of not just are you brave enough, but are you obedient enough, here's the other one last question. What happened to Peter? Because when you get to the book of Acts, he is a rock star. Legit, he's a rock star. He is so obedient. Between the Gospels and Acts, what happens? Well, Jesus dies and rises again and leaves the Holy Spirit with his people. That's what happens. They're behind a closed door. They're afraid. Jesus comes and says, it's me. Don't be afraid. I'm here. Just like he said that night. And then he breathed on them his Holy Spirit. Much like in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when the boat is stuck in the dark cloud of evil and everybody is freaked out of their head with fear and an albatross comes flying down out of the sky and leads the boat out to safety, but no one except Lucy, who's the contemplative little girl who knows Aslan best, no one except Lucy knew that as the bird circled the mast, it had whispered to her, courage, dear heart. And the voice she was sure was Aslan's. And with the voice, a delicious smell breathed in her face. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what happened to Peter. I would say if there's anything about Peter that we should emulate, it is not climbing out of the boat. It's being filled with the Spirit. And then who he was in the Acts of the Apostles, that's the Peter that we should emulate. Again, I think Jesus calls us to do all kinds of amazing, difficult things, none of which have anything to do with making us look awesome. 
all of which have to do with pointing towards him and glorifying him. It's not quite as exciting, um, but it's a thousand times better. It's a thousand times better because that's Jesus' story and he lets us be part of it while we're all busy wanting our own story. Hmm. Let me pray for us. You are good, Lord. You are always good, and you are always right. And I pray that we would never forget that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.